Mortgage Women Magazine. It's where women's voices are heard. Find it free at www.mortgagewomenmagazine.com. When you're the only person of color, decisions are made in ways that people just really don't think about what they're doing. This is Gated Communities, where we talk about everything you're not supposed to talk about in the mortgage industry. Three, two, one. Welcome back to Gated Communities. Today we have on Brian White, aka Woody White, the Senior Vice President and Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Homebridge Financial Services. Today we'll discuss why inclusivity is absolutely paramount to maintaining a healthy, diverse culture in your company and how that helps you reach a more diverse array of customers. Well, thank you, Woody, for joining us on the podcast today. Um, Absolutely. I know a bit about you because Andrew, uh, my colleague, introduced us. But um, I know from what I know about you, you have a very impressive resume. Um, You worked at big firms like Countrywide. Um, You were Homebridge's CIO, um, Chief Information Officer, before taking on the role of Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. Um, You also had a six-year run at Aetna um, after 2008. But in your own words, tell me a little bit about your career journey and how you got um, the position you have today. Well, let's see, you know, if we're talking about, let's just say specifically diversity and inclusion. So one fact is I've been an executive for, I don't know, 30 years now. And as a result, in a lot of companies, I was the only black executive in the company. So as a result, you know, I just took a natural yearning to wanting to help out with things like ERGs, diversity efforts. So just over the last 30 years and beyond, I've always been involved with setting up new programs. So if you add that to things that I've done out in the community, uh, I actually had a podcast back in 2013. And uh, it was for the black and Hispanic community. And that ro- that ran for I don't know how many years. It was on Apple Music, things like that. So I've been doing this a long time. And when I decided to retire from IT, uh, this is the direction I wanted to go in from a sort of a pay it forward standpoint. Mm-hmm. Was there any um, specific experience or maybe it was your journey altogether that led you um, on this mission? Like I said, I've been doing it out in the community. For me, it's more like taking what I've been doing in the community Mm -hmm. to actually be my full time job, which I enjoy doing and uh, doing what I can. You know, since I'm in a mortgage company, uh, I've been in the mortgage space since 1986. So I wanted to also bring that experience and uh, work on, you know, helping more uh, minority families get home ownership. So at Homebridge, I'm responsible for diversity and inclusion, but I'm also the executive sponsor for affordable lending as well. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to know, um, what are some of the challenges that you went through saying, you know, you were um, the only minority in an executive level position? Um, what are some of the the difficulties that come along with that? <laughs> I'm not sure the show's long enough for that one, but, uh, you know, j- just to give you a real simple answer to that. Um, When you're the only person of color, decisions are made in ways that people just really don't think about what they're doing. I'll give you an example. I worked for a large company and the goal was to move our corporate office to another area of the country. And it was great for everybody else. But for me, the minority uh, demographics in the area they wanted to move was basically zero. And nobody could understand why I may not want to move my family there, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not just about that type of demographic, but it's also, you know, what if I wanted to look for certain products that are specific to African-Americans? I can't find it because it's not there. So, it, you know, it, it even gets that deep when we're talking about some of the challenges and that's just at a personal level. But even within the workplace, uh, it's 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 challenging. Mm-hmm. 
And let's talk a little bit about your um, community-based initiatives. Um, a lot of them are focused on uh, financial education, you said, um, but uh, not product focus, not product pitches kind of disguised as DNI initiatives, which um, a lot of people in the industry have, you know, are very much used to. So why is uh, financial education your passion? Um, and kind of uh, describe these initiatives a bit more for us. So, so at Homebridge, you know, we, we're really trying to stay far away from any box. And the reason I want to approach it that way, working with other executives at Homebridge and other managers is because theoretically, if you if you if you hear some of what you're hearing today, for example, black home ownership, minority home ownership is now as low as it was when the, you know, the Housing Act was created back in 1965. That says whatever we've been doing isn't working at all. So it doesn't matter what this company or that company has been doing for the last 30, 40, 50 years, it's not working. So our goal is to really examine why it's not working and try to do things differently. So for example, we're creating a program called Finally Home. And the whole point to Finally Home is to stop doing what we used to do before. So for example, some companies will say a part of our education program is to teach people the mortgage process. Well, I disagree with that. You know, people don't want to sit through a long seminar and take little quizzes. They just want to know, how do I get a home? And that's what we're really trying to focus on, how to really prepare people to get a home without forcing them to go through these long, drawn out seminars and webinars to learn all this stuff when they really just need to know certain things, how to properly prepare. And just to give you an example from an education standpoint, if you've ever gone out to get a home, one of the first things that somebody will tell you is get your credit report. Well, if you get your credit report, you're getting your credit report from a credit agency. That's really a vantage score. When you go to a mortgage company, they're looking at your FICO score. And I've seen situations where black families have gone out, they got their credit score, and then they sit down with the loan officer. And as you know, in this industry, there aren't many minority loan officers. So nine times out of 10, they're sitting with a white loan officer. And the loan officer says, great, you know, we're ready to get started. Here's your credit score. Now we have a problem. This black family is looking at their credit score. They know what they received from their credit agency. And the loan officer is telling them it's lower. And that's possible if you understand, if you're properly prepared and you you learn and understand that there is a difference between a Vantage score and a FICO score. So if you're going to go to get a home, you should tell your, go to your bank and say, can I get my FICO score? I want to get a home. So this is the level of education you have to explain to people because the process breaks down in the very beginning. And you have to remember in, in the minority communities, when you still see things like redlining going on, even today, it's a lot of distrust. So you have to prepare people properly for the process, not necessarily the inner workings of the mortgage world. And that's some of what we want to do. So that's where we get to the financial planning as well. Going to get a home and having no idea what your budget really looks like. It's a problem, right? Because it's not just about getting the home. After you get the home, you have to take on other expenses that you didn't have when you had an apartment. And not everybody is clear on that. So our Finally Home program on the financial side is really getting to the meat of what people really need to know. And on the mortgage side, we're trying to teach things like the proper way to ask for a credit report for getting a home. You know things to prepare for after you get the home, how to properly work with an MLO, meaning a mortgage loan officer and a real estate agent, right? So many people go in and they go online and, and they're on you know realtor.com. And next thing you know, they think they're a real estate agent. They're telling their real estate agent what to do. They're telling their loan officer what to do. And the bottom line is these are guided processes. You don't need to know everything. The real estate agent will help you the loan officer will tell you when to submit your W-2. So we just want to dummy it down a bit for our loan officers, the people who are involved, and, and just have everybody relax a bit because 
if you're trying to self-diagnose yourself the way people do today on the internet, going out to the Mayo Health Clinic and self-diagnosing themselves before they go to the doctor, you're just creating problems for yourself. And, and getting a home does not have to be that complicated if you really understand what you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just pointed out two, you know, big misconceptions, which is one about budget. How big of a budget do I need? Um, a lot of misconceptions um, that I've read um, through surveys and research is that people think that they can't afford a down payment and aren't aware of assistance programs that are out there, which are LO and, you know, whoever you're speaking to with a, at a financial institution is supposed to point you in the right direction and give you access to those types of things and educate you on exactly. those types of things. So that those are really um, two big things that I think we could take away from this. It, what you just said kind of reminded me of um, um, a fact uh, pointed out in a study. This was done by the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, and I thought it, it was pretty interesting. Minority students tend to achieve better outcomes when taught by minority teachers. Minority patients achieve better outcomes when they're treated by minority doctors. And they also found that minority loan working with minority loan officers improves credit access for minority mortgage applicants along several dimensions. And it also lowers their default rate. And I thought that was, you know, really interesting. And I'm wondering what what is your opinion on that? What is that phenomenon and why does it work so much better when you're working with someone who is relatable to you? Well, I agree with some of that, but not all of it. So, for example, in the classroom, uh, I do believe when you're talking about certain topics and you're you're trying to connect with students, uh, I do believe that in some cases a black professor teaching a black student, that might help. Uh, But when we're talking about things like mortgages and other things, you know, this is how I see it in this country, for example. Most colleges and most businesses that I've gone to, you do have some blacks in prominent areas, but for the most part, it's predominantly white. So black people and Hispanic people are used to having white doctors, used to having white professors. So we don't feel like that's a requirement for us to gather knowledge and move forward in our lives. So when we talk about loan officers, I've purchased four, ho- four homes and I've never had a black loan officer in my life but I was still able to be successful. So I really think the issue, especially around getting a mortgage should be that one, you're treating people the same way all the time, providing the information they need and treating people with respect. I think the problem we have is that that doesn't happen. That's why we just saw $24 million uh, fine to companies still doing redlining. You know, that's the problem. So when you find that, you're looking for, you know, if a, if, a, if 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 a consumer that's black is looking for a black loan officer, it's because of that distrust, hoping that they'll be treated better. Mm-hmm. But overall, I, I don't feel like the outcome should be different in any way. I just think that uh, there needs to be a lot more respect and honesty and equity in terms of how we're treating people. And uh, everything should work out fine. But that's just not the case today. Mm -hmm. And how would you advise someone who's, you know, a a white MLO who's trying to work with a more diverse group, whether it's Hispanic, whether it's black, whether, you know, Asian, whatever it is. And somebody who has they're trying to work with somebody who has distrust of financial institutions. How do you start to build trust? Because I think it might be inauthentic to immediately jump into a sales pitch. but that's what you want. You want, you know, a sale. So why don't you uh, kind of explain um, your strategy for that? You know, what what would you advise them to do to begin building trust in a relationship with certain communities? So there are, there are a couple of things. The first thing is just be honest and be patient, right? You have to remember that still in a lot of minority communities, when somebody gets a home, not only may they be the first person in their immediate family to actually get a home, but they may be the first person in generations to get a home. So that means there isn't a lot of historical knowledge in the family about the process. So when you're sitting in front of someone and they don't understand 100% of what you're saying, be willing to answer questions. Don't get annoyed because someone's asking you more questions than you typically get asked during this process. You know, you have to be willing to answer questions. 
willing to be honest and open about, you know, how you're answering the questions. So, for example, sometimes I may ask a question as a black consumer when I'm talking to someone trying to sell me a car. I actually already know the answer. But since I'm going to the phase where we have to deal with the finances of, of now signing up this lease, for example, I'm going to ask some questions just to see if this person is going to give me an honest answer. And if I realize, OK, so you're basically not even giving me honest answers then I have to move on. So just because someone's asking you a question doesn't mean they don't actually have an idea of what the answer is. They just may be testing you to see whether or not you're an honest person. And that happens all over the place. So, you know, I just still believe honesty is the best policy in treating people with respect and understanding that when some people are in front of you and they don't understand the process, if you're patient and you answer their questions, I think everything will be just fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's that's pretty good advice. And do you believe that... um by making the industry more diverse, we'll be able to help more underserved communities like this that will be more approachable to these people and actually start to build trust as an industry. Well, I answer that in two ways. I think if I was a black loan officer, I shouldn't be told, well, we hired you as a black loan officer. You can only help black people. That's ridiculous. So I'm not looking for diversity for that purpose. But I would say if you're a company and you're marketing to you're marketing your products and services out to America, then you should want to be diverse. You should want a diverse staff and a diverse group of MLOs that identify with the communities, you know, have a diverse understanding of the various communities that you're basically trying to make money from. So for me in general, I don't understand why any company would want to sell its products and services to a vast group but yet not have a diverse group inside your own company to understand uh, the community you're trying to work with. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Latinos in particular, they're becoming the the fastest growing um, group or demographic of first time home buyers. So a, a lot of companies we see now are are starting to adapt to that, um, offering documents in their native language, you know, whatever dialect that they speak, um, possibly recruiting more Latino and Hispanic people. Um, and things like that. So we see a lot of people wanting to be diverse, but there's also the other element to it, which is inclusion, which is what I want to talk about with you today and what that means to be inclusive internally within your own company. So are there some ways that because, um, you know, it, it could be difficult. You're hiring all these new people. It's hard for to be new anywhere, but coming in and being the only black person or the only Latino person must feel a bit isolating. So what are some things that a company can do to make them feel like they belong? Well, I would have answered that question a different way probably about three years ago. Mm -hmm. But uh, now that so many people work from home, I'll tell you something. Uh, inclusion is difficult, right? It's like you're not in the office anymore. You don't have these little meetings you can go to and go after work and plan certain things. It just feels uh, more challenging right now. You know, so a lot of stuff is happening on paper, right? You know, you, you have this Zoom group and you, you kind of do something and you put out a newsletter. And, you know, now I think the inclusion component just feels different. And I think we have to figure out how to adjust to make it feel authentic, mm -hmm. you know, because it just feels kind of dry on a Zoom and it feels kind of dry when you send out a newsletter and it's just not the same. So I think companies, just from an inclusion standpoint, separate from doing all of these things on paper, I think uh, we, we hit a point where all of a sudden so much went to remote. We're going to have to go back to, OK, when do we gonna, when are we going to have these quarterly meetings or, you know, once a week we meet somewhere. So, you know, so some other things have to happen. But from an inclusive standpoint, I think uh, how you how employees look at a company and how uh, people who are interested in working at your company, when they're looking from an inclusion standpoint, it's a whole different ballgame. And, uh, you know, I have a whole list of things that I usually take a look at and and examine to make sure that we are trying to do the best things at Homebridge. So, you know, for example, if I didn't work at Homebridge or you didn't work at a company, 
one of the first things that you take a look at is let's say core values, right? Every company has core values posted all over the place. But if you go to so many companies and you see at the executive level, there are no women. You see at the executive level in the board, there are no women, no African-Americans, no Hispanics. Are those core values really worth anything? Because you have to sit and think if those core values were so good, things wouldn't look the way they look. So you may have to really adjust your core values to make sure they're actually doing anything of any value. So you get away from that. And then you have to take a look at all the different ways you bring people into your company, right? Because you don't think about it from a corporate standpoint, but your employees are watching. People who want to come into your company, they're watching. And I'll give you an example. Nepotism. So let's imagine you work for a company, let's just say the size of Walmart. So you come out of your, you know, you get your finance degree, you get your MBA, and you land in a company where every more people in the finance department all have the same last name. Now you have to sit and think about that. If I landed in a company and so many people have the same last name, am I really going to be able to advance to that CFO position that I'm looking for? So you have to be able to explain to people what that means to keep good talent at your company, because that good talent wants to be the CFO, right? But if somebody else in the finance department has the same last name, you're going to sit and think, I'll never get the job. I got to go somewhere else. So even that, you have to have a plan. The friends and family program in most companies, right? Hey, bring in a friend, you get 250 bucks. Well, you know what mortgage companies look like. They're predominantly white. A lot of financial companies look like that. But if you have a friends and family program and everybody tends to operate in their sphere of influence, if you grab somebody you know and it's a predominantly white company, are you really diversifying? Because you're not. Mm -hmm. Because it's going to keep looking the same. So you may have to set limits in some companies on that friends and family program so that more pro more positions can go out to the marketplace to allow you to diversify. Mm -hmm. So there, there are many different ways that people come into companies and uh, you really have to think about all the different ways to diversify, whether it be college students, you know, in the mortgage space, it, it's a little bit different, right? If you go to a college and you want to recruit, if you're recruiting for MLOs, you're probably not going to get anywhere because if you grab finance students out of college and you try to recruit them to be a loan officer, they're going to say, what commission? Why would I take commission when I can get a high paying job over here with a bonus? So you really have to pay attention to all the different things that are going on when you're trying to recruit and create diversity, because there are many different ways that people come into your company, whether it be a hostile takeover that you have to treat those employees differently. When you go out and recruit, for example, at Homebridge, we have relationships where if we have a position we have a relationship with a company that makes sure a number of positions that we have automatically get posted on LGBT uh, job groups, HBCU job groups, veterans job groups. So those relationships help us push our jobs out there to various groups. But you have to really think this stuff through. You, 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 it, it doesn't just happen, you know. And, and one last thing I'll tell you is, for example, with re recruiting. Now, I've been in situations where I'll walk into a company and I'll look and I'll, I'll say, OK, this is an IT group, 30 people in the IT group, one woman. And I'd say, well, I know there are a lot of women out there that want to be in IT. So I go back to the managers and I'll ask a question. OK, before you hired your last person, can I see a list of the resumes you received from the recruiter? And then I would see the recruiter would send all men. And I'd ask the manager, why didn't you say something about this to send the recruiter back to give you more diverse candidates? So I had everybody sign a pledge. It's not so much about the hiring process. It's about taking a look at your own environment, your own group and saying, wow, you know, we have 45 people here. There are no women, no blacks, no Hispanics. Can we do better than this? It doesn't look like this because the recruiter is only giving us a certain population and we're not forcing the recruiting company to give us diverse 
resumes. Mm-hmm. It's things like that, that all of that together is what's going to help determine the level of diversity you get in your company and you have to work at it. It's not going to happen through osmosis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, that's interesting because I think some people, you know, I'm not sure I'm, I'm not a recruiter, but I think some people just don't know how to market to specific groups. But like you said, there are groups out there, LGBTQ uh, groups, um, female groups and all of that sort of stuff that, you know, you can reach out to them. Are, are you referring to um, to Facebook groups or specific websites? Oh, well, we do Facebook groups. We do uh, uh, LinkedIn as well. But we also uh, connected with a company called Circa. And they basically take all of our jobs. They give us good, good uh, analytics back. And they make sure that certain jobs that we give to them, they automatically go out to HBCU boards, LGBT group boards, as well as places uh, that would support uh, disabled as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, awesome. And and you kind of touched on this too. It's not just about getting these people through the door, but also making them feel welcome. And sometimes that means having to change your culture, um, company culture. So for example, if you had all men in your company before, now you're starting to grow, you're recruiting more women on board. Um, this might change some things. Maybe, you know, you, you can't go out to that restaurant that you all used to go out to because women don't like to go there or you maybe not saying certain things. So how do you help a company? If you were in charge of a team, how would you help them accommodate um, the new talent on board and ensure that everybody gets along? Hey, again, a lot of this is really about communication. It's about some of the classes that you hold for employees on an annual basis to teach them about, you know, the differences are values for everybody, right? And I mean, I could give you an example. I, I actually remember hiring a group of people for a specialized product, I mean, project that we had, and we had to work long hours. And in the middle of being in in this intense environment for this project, certain people would leave in the middle of the day for prayer. And this is something that we don't understand in our country because, you know, we go to church on Sunday or whatever it is, and that's when that happens. But that's not the same for all cultures. So in the beginning, People were upset that people would walk out of the meeting, you know, and for certain times of the day to do certain things. And, you know, I had to remind everybody, you know, we have a mixture, a melting pot on our team and people have different cultures, different religions. And we need to understand that that's a part of who we are now. So, you know, you you have to work at it. and you're not going to get it from just reading in a book, reading a book or bringing in a contractor and telling you, here's how it's going to be. You have to work at it. You, you, you have to have a lot of communication. You have to talk, get people to understand, allow people to ask questions. And, and that's how you do it. I'm just a little bit concerned, I'll be honest with you, about how companies are configured today. I didn't grow up working remotely, okay? So this whole working remotely thing does have an impact on a number of things that used to be common in the workplace, right? You could you know, you could see someone upset, walk out the door, stand outside smoking. You can see they're upset, right? You can't see that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've left a meeting and I would see somebody walk around the corner and see people talking about the meeting. And I'd walk over there and say, hey, what happened? What's going on? And you learn more. That's not happening anymore. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think, you know, from a Homebridge standpoint, we're readjusting to figure out what the new workplace looks like. How can we capture those lost feelings that you just don't see anymore? And some of that just has to do with having an open environment, allowing people to speak. So if you can't see what's happening after the meeting is over, maybe you have you built the right environment to allow people to give you a call and and communicate what they're feeling because you can't see it anymore. Mm -hmm. It's different now. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, if you don't practice inclusivity in your company, that person who does feel left out, it's it's hard for them to to progress in their career. You know, if people are like, yeah. well, she she prays twice a day, I, I can't rely on her to get this done. And then 
cutting her off from opportunities or whatever it may be um, can really hold back an individual. Um, So I know a lot of your advice was pointed out what a company and what a team should do. But let's say there's an individual listening right now who feels isolated and who is a remote worker. What are some proactive things that they can do um, in order to um, develop a sense of belonging and a a more um, a stronger bond with their team and their company? Well, you know, I, I still I, I still believe communication is the best thing. And, you know, you have to use whatever tools you have. And, you know, before I'd say walk into that person's office and just sit down and start a conversation. Again, it's not the same anymore, but it doesn't mean it has to be different. You know, I, I would say, you know, reach out to anybody in the company that you already have a relationship with. And if that's nobody, start a relationship with somebody. You know, the bottom line is, even though you can't just walk into somebody's office, there's literally nothing stopping you from going through that team's directory and saying, you know, I heard I heard this person works in HR. I heard this person works in IT and introduce yourself, set up a team, you know, connect with people. I, I think nothing has changed in terms of what we do. It's just changed how we do it. And I'm not sure we all have figured that out yet. I can say I haven't figured it all out yet. Um, some of this working remotely, it, 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 I wouldn't say it, it impacted productivity, definitely didn't impact productivity, but it impacted something else. And I think we're still figuring out what that something else is. But if, if somebody's out there sitting alone on an island, I say, you know, just connect with people, set up a meeting if you have to. That's just saying, hey, I'm new here. I just wanted to get to know some more people at, at, at the company. You know, that's that's just the kind of uh, flexibility and dynamic that we have to create. You know, I, I know companies have job. I mean, what do you call it? The uh, blog boards and things like that. And, uh, you know, again, to me, it's just another electronic connection that uh, becomes too much information, too much chatter and just doesn't really do the job. So we have to figure out still how, how do we make this new thing that we're doing work best for the employee. And we, we, we've tried a number of things at Homebridge. We're doing some things now. For example, at Homebridge, we don't have ERG groups. Mm-hmm. And largely that's because of me. I've been with a lot of companies and I've been involved in ERG groups where I was in the black man's group. And, and while, while we did talk as black men, the issues we had at the company went nowhere. You know, it was sort of like, you know, misery loves company kind of a thing. And I didn't want to do that here at Homebridge until we figured out how to do this remote thing. Right. So what I did do was in diversity and inclusion, I created a live television program. So, you know, it's a live program where anybody could join in, ask questions. We focus on a topic, you know, for that show so that people can ask questions. It's fluid. You know, you can submit a question in the chat box, but we call the show the conversation spot. And instead of having a segregated group, anybody can join in and communicate openly about what they want to talk about around the company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's a great idea. You know, just kind of flex your bo- your voice a little bit to, you know, anyone who's listening who is working remotely and does feel a bit left out. I think that's some great advice. And I want to get to this point as well. When a lot of people talk about diversifying your company um, and on the DNI topic, they say it, it'll increase your profitability by 30 something percent. I think it's up to 36% by now. And they're quoting a McKinsey study. And some people, you know, don't really listen to that quote, I think, because they don't understand how that translates into profitability. But maybe you could give us a better idea of how having a diverse staff would actually make you more productive and more profitable. So when it comes to the financial services industry, which is where I lived most of my time, I'll say this, financial services is for everybody, right? Bank account, doesn't matter what it is. If you want to create products that are appealing to a vast amount of people, you need to understand those communities, okay? And and I think other companies like, for example, Coca-Cola, they understand that. Coca-Cola has one product, right? There's this bottle of Coke. But if you go to the black community, the commercials 
sound different than they do in the Hispanic community. It's it's identifying with the community so that the community can understand the value of your product. So that translates into sales, right? If you're trying to reach the black community and you're a mortgage company and there's nobody helping you create these products that are, you know, whether it be a special purpose credit pro- program for the black community, if you don't understand what's going on, you're not going to get anywhere. The product won't look like it makes sense. It's not going to connect in. And, and I'll give you an example. I remember sitting in front of a local bank and the goal was to educate the community on their products and how to save money. So we're in this community and the bank is talking about you can put your money in a CD and they talked about these things. If you understood the community, people who need their money to be liquid, they need access to it. You wouldn't be telling them to put their money in a three year CD. It doesn't make any sense. So people walked away. This didn't help me at all. The only reason they presented it that way is because they didn't understand the communities they were in. You're better off telling somebody, hey, if you want higher interest, but you need access to your money, maybe a money market is better instead of telling people to lock their money up in a CD. And that's all a result of no diversity in planning the products, nobody in the meeting that understood the community and people walking out dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. And that's how it is, as far as I'm concerned, in a mortgage company. We do business in all 50 states and all 50 states do not look the same, Mm -hmm. period. And we have to be diverse internally to make sure we're trying to create and support the communities to the best of our ability. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and to your point, you know, we're a very diverse country and as diverse as your company is, you will probably eventually be working with a borrower from a community that you are not educated on, you know, just because there's so many different segments and and pockets within this country that and it's a sales skill. I think it's a, a true testament to your skills um, if you can begin to work with somebody who is so much different than you. And like you said, it all starts with building trust and educating yourself about their culture and where they're coming from. So I I definitely think that's really important. Um, Getting into now um, the what we touched on in the beginning, which is the the lack of diversity within the top executive level at companies within the C-suite. I'd like to get your opinion on why that is, because sometimes we do see a lot of um, a good amount of diversity um, within sales teams or um, within kind of the lower tiers of the company. But as you inch up, it becomes more and more white, more and more male. So I want to get your uh, perspective on why that is and how that happens. Well, I think the first component to that is, does the C-suite adhere to the same rules that the rest of the company does, right? You, you know, it's give me the resumes. Let's take a look at at, at, at uh, a number of diverse candidates. I don't think it happens that way. I think in the C-suite, a lot of times it's, hey, I know this guy's at the CFO. I used to work with him, you know, a long time ago. And boom, the person's on board. There's no real vetting of a diverse team for the position. It's really already there. And and if you take a look at why, for example, there is there there's so little minority loan officers. Well, even if you take a look at the makeup right now, what's happening? You have all these loan officers, but you have very few minority loan officers. And how does it happen? Hey, my son wants to get into this business. So they train their son, then they train their cousins and their sisters and everything, and it it remains the same. So the bottom line is you have the same problem, again, at the board level, right? People are recommending people they already know. People tend to grab whoever's in their sphere of influence or whoever it is they used to work with. And if you're grabbing executives you used to work with, the odds are there are not a lot of minorities in that collection because you're grabbing other C-suite executives that you already know. So the bottom line is, uh, I just don't think that the C-suite adheres to the same policies that they want everybody else in the company to adhere to, which is we have a position open. Let's go out to the marketplace. Let's get a diverse group of candidates and let's, let's, let's interview. Let's find it. That's just not how it happens. And, uh, I think that's why things look the way that they do today. And 
And, and that's just how it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I want to think about kind of that psychologically what's happening there um, with the nepotism and with pulling people that are already within your sphere of influence. Um, it must be it must feel more comfortable to do that as somebody. So if I'm, you know, the boss of a company and I'm about to hand my company over to somebody else. Well, I've been working with Joe for a really long time. We always grab drinks together and we talk business when we drag when we grab drinks together. And this, um, you know, but this woman, you know, who is really good at my company, probably just as good as Joe. I just I'm not as comfortable with her because we don't go out and we don't get drinks together. So I, I kind of, you know, see that as also being a roadblock. Something psychological is happening there where you're feeling more comfortable with somebody because, you know, if you're handing your business over, you're designating someone to a very important position. You want to be comfortable with that decision. So, yeah. you know, but if you're able to recognize that and say, hey, I'm I'm being biased here, then maybe that you can do something about it and you can open up a bit more to these other people. What would you advise to someone who finds themselves stuck in that situation. Well, I stick to my sphere of influence because I'm comfortable with these people. Well, I, I think it depends on the company, right? If, if you're in a company and there are other executives around you, you should bring them into the process to, to help you get past that, right? Because you can listen to other opinions, you know, and, and that's kind of what you have to do. You have to communicate. You have to keep, keep talking about it because what you just said is what happens. I'm, I'm, that's what I meant by the sphere of influence. I'm comfortable with this person I worked with before. So I'm going to do the same thing. And it, it happens a lot. And, uh, you know, I can tell you there are a number of times where, um, for example, I, I've gone on interviews and they give me the walkthrough, you know, the walkthrough the company. Let's do the walkthrough. And after the walkthrough and I get home, I have to think and say to myself, Okay, I I'm not sure I want to work for this company because not everybody wants the challenges of being the first. You know, after it's all over with, somebody will say, "Oh, you were the first African American to do." It. But you know what? If you know that going in, you may not be up for it all the time. And there are a couple of positions that uh I did the walkthrough and it was just so actually it was no diversity. Mm-hmm. And I just decided I'm not sure I want to be the first here. I'm not sure I'm in the mood for that. So the bottom line is, I believe it can be broken, but I do believe it starts with the executive suite operating the way they expect their other managers to operate when a position opens up. And if you're doing that, you're automatically following the same guidelines of getting resumes, interviewing people, bringing in diversity and making a decision. And if, you know, if the person you have that's in your sphere of influence is the right person, then with all the other managers interviewing that person, along with everybody else that interviewed, if they shine, they shine. But I I just think that the, the step one is not really happening. I do not think that in most cases, the executive suite is following the same process they expect all their other managers to follow when a new position opens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, starting to come full circle now, um, when you, you know, you open up positions to the broader audience, but I think nepotism is is especially prevalent in the mortgage industry. I mean, you see it a lot. It's, you know, a, yeah. kind of a legacy and that's what people bring their sons or even, you know, their daughters and everything like that. And you see a lot of the same over time. Why do you think that this is, you know, why is legacy so prevalent in this industry? Is this industry hard to learn about? Is it not getting enough exposure to college students? Is it boring to people? Like, I'm wondering why, how did this pattern start? So I'll tell you this. Long time ago, I decided I wanted to be a stockbroker. Okay. So I left technology for a while and I headed on that path. What was interesting about it was it was very clear how I became a stockbroker. I started working for a company, it was in New York. I studied for the Series Six, Series Seven, Six A, all that stuff. I passed the exam and I became a broker. Okay. 
ask someone, how do you become a loan officer? Try to figure that out mm-hmm. because there is no such path, no such defined process. So even though you have schools out there that try to teach you the mortgage process, when it comes to teaching people the sales process of the mortgage process, it, that's where it all breaks down. So where do you go to become a loan officer? Right. You don't go to university or whatever. There's no such program. So the program is sort of the school of hard knocks. My mom's a loan officer. She's going to teach me the school of hard knocks, teach me everything I need to know. And I become a loan officer. So it's kind of a catch 22 unless companies, which we're looking at right now, even at Homebridge, unless you decide to create loan officer school in your company, or it happens with the Mortgage Bankers Association, wherever it happens, unless you have a defined way for people to come in, go through the process and go out and become a loan officer with a process to support them, that's why it looks this way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I've i been in this industry since 1986. I thought it would have changed by now. But to be honest, if I ask people, how do you become a loan officer? The answer today sounds exactly like it did before. It's not really clear. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you were pitching this to a group of college kids, you know, some jobs uh, look more glamorous than others. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we, when we talk about appraisers versus real estate agents, you know, being an appraiser is a good job, but look, being a real estate agent looks a lot more glamorous, you know, um, and it gets a lot more exposure. There's, you know, there's reality shows about real estate agents, but there's none about appraisers. So people get a lot more exposure to certain things. What would you say to, uh, you know, a group of college kids in order to get them to be an LO? What are some of the glamorous things um, or the, the benefits of the job that they could look forward to? Being an, an MLO? Yeah. Or any really any position within the mortgage industry. Yeah. for You know, for one, I, I just think that uh, financial services and the mortgage industry is a great place to work. But there are many different entry points there. Are, I mean, for example, I, I got into the mortgage industry through technology and pretty much learned everything about the mortgage industry through technology. And a lot of people who graduate college, they're, they're not thinking I could become a programmer at a mortgage company. They're, they're not thinking that way. But it's true. You can. And you can learn a lot as well and take advantage of what the company offers to learn more. Um, but to become a loan officer, for example, you know, like I said, there's no loan officer school. So this particular industry is like get in where you can. Right. So if you can get in and you can and they can and somebody can teach you underwriting, then get in there. If it's in operations then get in there. And as you're in, you can move to other positions and learn other things and become a loan officer. But like I said, that's the only path I could think of. If you're just trying to get in and you get in, you can eventually become a loan officer. But until we create the loan officer creation program that's definitive and it takes eight months and, you know, it's over with and you you become a loan officer. I don't know uh, how to address the loan officer part, but I just think. Uh, you can get into multiple levels of the mortgage industry, whether you're an accountant, a programmer, an HR, and you can learn about the business and change into different departments to satisfy your need to be in the mortgage space at whatever level you want. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a benefit to opening up these positions to the wider audience instead of you know, somebody whose mother was also an LO, you know, maybe, yes, they have more familiarity with this sort of thing. But what we see in these recruitment programs and these internship programs that bring in college students, they come from a variety of majors, um, computer science, engineering, English. They have different types of minds. Their minds all work differently. And when they come in, they could also bring in something different to your company, different types of perspective, different strategies, whatever that may be, you know. And And I think I think we we, I mean, for example, at Homebridge, we have something called homegrown. And this is where we can take someone from high school or somebody else from college and just say, you know, why don't you get started in underwriting and you get started in operations and they just start to grow in the industry? I, so I, I think there is already a lot of that. I just think it's the loan officer part mm-hmm. that we really don't have a good answer for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And I think, you know, for loan officers, what other people do see is the grind that you have to do, you know, working on commission and the business is very cyclical. So some years you're really riding high, like the 2020 boom and 2021. And then other years like this year and next year are going to be a bit harder for everybody. But, um, you know, it's all about strategizing, you know, just like with any commission based um, career. It's about what you do with your money, how you manage it and those sorts of things. And um, it can feel more comfortable over time. Um, is there anything else that you, you that you wanted to add? Anything you wanted to share about the Finally Home program or what you're doing at HomeBridge and for communities? Um, you know, I would like to ask you, what is your vision for, you know, at the with uh, the Finally Home program and with diversifying within your own company? What is the vision and what is the goal that you're trying to reach? Yeah, so overall at HomeBridge, you know, the, the overall goal, I think, is the same as many companies. You know, many mortgage companies, financial services have limited diversity, especially as you move your way further up the ladder. So the goal is to, you know, work with our HR departments, our partners, like I said, Circa, and do our best to improve on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always room for improvement. Um, I would also say that from a finally home standpoint, the goal is to be able to really provide the right kind of education to get a home and provide the right type of education to do a better job with better understanding personal finance and to use that platform, similar to my Coca-Cola example, across communities. You know, understanding that the products and and what we're going to create with Finally Home, it's the same because everybody has pretty much the same needs, but the message will be different as we connect with the different communities to speak you know, the right language and, and and deliver the information in a way that it fits for the right community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and giving us your perspective on these things. Um, it was great getting to know you and I hope more people finally, you know, are encouraged to also um, teach people about financial education and to talk about diversity and inclusivity within their own companies and authentically try to achieve, you know, similar goals. So thank you so much. It was great being here. I, I appreciate the invite and uh, I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Awesome. Thank you. This is Gated Communities, hosted by me, Katie Jensen, for the Mortgage News Network. All episodes are produced by T.G. Kudem Peror and Matthew Mullins. Our head of multimedia is Mike Savino, and our editor-in-chief is Christine Stewart. Make sure you subscribe to Gated Communities so you get future episodes, and be sure to rate and review it so others can find it. The song you heard at the beginning was Wild Side by Saint Society. And the song you hear now is Will You Dance With Me by La La Nia. This podcast is copyrighted by American Business Media. OCN is the largest producer of events for mortgage professionals. We bring the action to you. See when we'll be in your area. Just visit us at www.originatorconnectnetwork.com. That's www.originatorconnectnetwork.com.